Everybody say bacon. 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 Doesn't it just, you can't say the word without smiling. Like it is really a fascinating dynamic. Now I know that we have some committed vegans in the room and, and we love you and pray for you on a regular basis, but bacon, and, and don't even try with, you know, soy bacon or turkey bacon. That's a cute effort. And if you need to do that, I understand that. If your doctor's prescribed it and you have to, okay. But, but we started this series, for those of you who weren't here, you may be thinking, what in the world have I walked into? And just by way of background and kind of catching you up to speed from where we started last week, I re-encountered re a verse in the Bible several, several months ago that I had read before but had never struck me in the same way. And it's Psalm 34, verse 8, where the Bible says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And this was not anything that I was studying for a, a sermon that I was preparing or for a speaking engagement anywhere. This was just my own prayer life, my own time with the Lord and reading Scripture. And that verse jumped off the pages at me in a way that I had never experienced before. And so I began to kind of pray on and ponder on that passage of Scripture. And I began to ask myself, why or, or what is it that is just so good about God and and what is it that when you taste it it is undeniably good and I immediately thought of bacon I, I think most of us would say I love me some bacon I, I enjoy it it doesn't matter if it's breakfast lunch dinner eggs Brussels sprouts you put bacon on it I am there how many of you got a bacon covered donut walking in the room this morning a sermon in a donut which I'm about to explain to you but it's there. And now, if you didn't get a donut when you walked in this morning, we've been trying to tell you to be here on time is not only helpful to those around you and not a distraction, but it's also very strategic on your part. So, you know, who knows what we'll be giving away next weekend. But I also began asking myself, what is it about bacon? What is it about bacon that is so, just so life-changing and so good. If you were going to describe bacon to somebody, if somebody said, why do you like bacon? Describe it for me. I've never tasted bacon. I think we would say, you know, bacon has the perfect combination. It is a, a perfect proportion of sweet with salty mixed together. There, when, you, when you put bacon in your mouth, there's that... Oh. <laughs> And it's, it's, that, it's that sweetness that comes from, from the curing and the, and the sugar that's, that's in there. But there's also that, that salty thing that we, you just can't get enough of. And the more you have, the more you want. And that, that's kind of the, the secret magic bullet of bacon is that combination of sweet and salty. And I realized in that same moment that the exact same thing could be said about God himself. That, that there are... Parts of God's personality, parts of his character and the way that he deals with us whom he loves so much that are absolutely sweet, that are enticingly sweet. We're, we're drawn to the, the grace, the forgiveness, the love, the wisdom, the power, those things that he promises to us. And we're like, that is awesome. That is a sweet taste going down. We love those things. And... At the same time, there are parts of God's personality and his character and the way he 
deals with us whom he loves so, so much that are really very, very salty, that, they, that there's a little harder edge to some other parts of his personality and his character. Like we talked about last week, the fact of his righteousness, his moral perfection, and the fact of his, his sovereignty and complete authority over the entire universe that there will come a day at which every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That day has not arrived yet, and, and we all have the freedom to decide how we're going to respond to God's revealed truth, but the fact is, that's a fact, that Jesus is sovereign. He's the King of kings. He's the, the Lord of lords. There, there's the fact of God's judgment and the reality that he will judge every single one of us. And our, our works, our lives will be judged by a morally perfect God. And there's also the fact that God gets angry and his wrath is real. But when we remember the fact that there are also those sweet parts and we combine the sweetness with the saltiness of God, we realize that all taken together, it's all good. It is all the goodness of God, and we can't have one without the other. If we, if we try to take the sweet part of God without the salty part, what we've done is we've reduced him to an overly permissive grandpa God, little g, who gives us everything that we want and nothing that we need. When I was in the third grade, the summer between my third grade and fourth grade year, I spent entirely in Beaumont, Texas with my grandparents. How many of you have ever been to Beaumont? The Golden Triangle. If you've been to Beaumont and you know about the Golden Triangle, you understand irony. But for a third grade kid with his grandparents, it was heaven on earth. Everything I wanted, I got. Everything I wanted to do, we did. If I wanted to go to a movie, we went to a movie. If I wanted to have bacon for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we had bacon for breakfast, lunch, and dinner all summer long. If I wanted hamburger helper, my grandfather would fix me hamburger helper while my grandmother was at work at First Security National Bank. Everything I wanted. Interestingly, though, just before departing for Beaumont from Houston for the summer, my mom had decided we're going to go ahead and get the back-to-school shopping out of the way. And so we had gone to Sears and loaded up on tough skin jeans and the slims and gotten ready for school. But when I returned from a summer eating my grandmother's cooking and eating whatever I wanted whenever I wanted, my tough skin slims no longer fit. Apparently I had grown out of them. And unbeknownst to me, my mother had to go back to Sears and walk into the husky department. <laughs> and... I didn't even know it at the time, but my mom put me on a diet in the third grade. And I didn't know it until years later when I was in high school. And she said, oh, no, you were fat. <laughs> because my grandparents gave me everything that I wanted, but not everything that I needed. And a lot of times we, we kind of hope God does that as well. But the flip side of that coin is also true. If we only look to God's salty character traits, if we only... Think about the parts of his character that are a little harder edged, then we will ultimately resent God. And, and our resentment will 
degenerate into a rebellion, and the rebellion ultimately will lead us to reject God because we've forgotten or ignored the sweet part of his personality and his character. It is both and at the same time, at all times, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've got to take it all together. And to get at this this morning, I want to direct your attention as a kind of a springboard passage of Scripture to the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's found in Psalm chapter 119. Now, it's interesting, I think, that the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. Psalm 119 is 176 verses long. 176 verses. And almost every single verse references God's Word by name. Lord, your decrees, your commandments, your statutes, your Word, scriptures, on and on. The entire chapter is devoted to the value and the virtue of God's Word. But I want to direct your attention to Psalm 119, verse 103. Psalm 119, 103 is really where we're going to dive into the sweetness of God. Check this out in the Bible. The Bible says, how sweet. Turn to your neighbor right now and like you mean it, tell him, sweet. sweet. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Now, I have a confession to make this morning. I have never heard anybody describe the Bible as sweet. Until this study, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I've heard people describe the Bible as good, authoritative, reliable, God's Word. I've heard people bash the Bible. I've heard people thump the Bible. I've seen people reject the Bible. I've never heard anyone describe the Bible as sweet. And yet, here in God's Word, it says God's Word is sweet. And so this morning, in the time that we've got left, we're going all in on Scripture. We're going all in. And what I want to do in the time that we have left is is create in you a hunger for the Bible, for, for the Word of God, to understand that when you pick up the Bible, every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is there on purpose with a purpose. You know, a lot of us around here back in January, we, we launched as a church the Year of Living Fearlessly, and as part of that, we took on a challenge of reading through the entire Bible in 365 days, in a calendar year, reading through the Bible. And we've just now entered into October, so we've only got three months left. Some of us have some catch-up work to do, let's be honest. But the fact of the matter is it is fascinating when you read the Bible cover to cover to watch the, the thread of God's work, to watch the pull of history as it becomes his story working itself out through the pages of Scripture. And you understand that every bit of it is there deliberately and on purpose. And I want to I show you part of what God says and what He intends for Scripture in our lives. Not just as, a, as only 
an intellectual pursuit, although that's a part of it, but also as a transformational pursuit. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. Now remember that 1 and 2 Timothy were Paul's letters written to his pastoral protege, Timothy. Timothy had started out his ministry as an assistant, kind of an aide-de-camp, if you will, to the Apostle Paul and had traveled with him and traveled for him, gone to different churches that Paul had helped to establish and found. But later in his life, we know that Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Timothy became the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul wrote First and Second Timothy as letters of encouragement, letters of mentoring to Timothy in this pastorate. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says something so fascinating that's an incredible reminder for us about the power and the beauty of Scripture. Check this out. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 first. He says, now as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue in what you have learned. You've known the Holy Scriptures. Remember the Word of God. This is foundational, not only to your ministry, but to your salvation itself. You see, what, what Paul's reminding Timothy of and teaching us is that the Word of God initiates God's work. The Word of God initiates God's work in us. You see, salvation does not happen apart from the Word of God. We have to hear the Word of God. We have to know what the Word says about our need for salvation. Salvation being a relationship with Christ. The reality that God has created us, that God loves us, and that our sin, my sin, your sin, all God's children's sin, our sin separates us from God. Now, if that were the end of the story, that'd be a bad news story. But Jesus repairs the relationship that our sin ruptured. And anyone who believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. And this is salvation, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Word of God initiates the work of God. It is through the Word of God that we become aware of our need for God. And so the Word of God is precious to us. It's the Word of God that, that alerted us to our need for God, for forgiveness, for the reality of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't forget the power of Scripture. Don't forget that it's there for a reason, and it began this work of salvation in you. It made you wise for salvation. Apart from the Word of God, we don't even know that we need God. But it is the Word of God that alerts us to our need. And so we celebrate that. We, we thank God for it. And that's one of the reasons that the psalmist said the Word of God is so sweet. We, we are alerted to the fact that we need God. And that becomes a reality for us 
in salvation. But this is not only in salvation. This is how God has always operated. Go all the way back to the very beginning. Because it was in the beginning that God created. How did God create? God spoke. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the dark. And there was the first day. God spoke. And there was. And it was good. And at every stage along the way throughout creation, God said, and there was, and it was good. God said, and there was, and it was good. God said, and there was, and it was good. So what God did in creation was just the beginning of what he would then do in salvation. God spoke, and there was, and it was good. God spoke salvation commanded Christ to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, and when he rose again in the power of God, and there was salvation and forgiveness, it was good. God's word initiates God's work. But Paul continues to kind of pull this thread in verses 16 and 17. Look at what he says. He says, all Scripture. Say all. All. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Word of God initiates God's work, but then he goes on and he says the Word of God cultivates God's worker. He, he uses the Word to to cultivate us as his workers in this world. As we, we move from salvation, that's not where he leaves us. We don't come to a moment of faith, trust Christ, and then are beamed home immediately. We stay here as collaborators, as co-laborers with Christ. And as co-laborers, we need to be, we, we need to be cultivated. We, we need to be kind of trimmed and pruned from time to time. There, there are parts of my life that, that require some, some trimming, that require some cultivating. We're not fully formed. The Bible says we have not yet attained to the glory prepared for us. We're on our way, but we're not there yet. Tell your neighbor like you mean it, I'm not there yet. Now don't say back to him, I know. Just let that be between them and God, Okay. But God uses his word to cultivate us. Let me share, look at what Jesus said in John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You see, when we feel God pruning us through Scripture, we ought to celebrate that because he's saying, you're doing great and you can do better. You're producing right now, but I'm going to prune this off so that I can do even more through you. Reminds me of what a basketball coach told me in high school. I'll never forget this. He said, he goes, Mac, let me tell you something. The only time you need to worry is if I'm not yelling at you. If I'm not yelling at you, that means I've given up on you. He goes, now you don't have any talent, but, but I think I can still use what is there. So I'm going to yell at you some more. 
in a basketball sense. He was pruning me. He, he was pruning me so I'd be more productive on the court. Spiritually, God is always working on us. And Scripture is the primary, not the only, but it is the primary pruning tool that God uses. Hebrews chapter 4, for the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged pruning fork, sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Check this out. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You see, when God uses the Bible to prune us, he exposes what's really in our heart of hearts. The stuff that we don't talk about and we don't want anybody else to know about, Scripture exposes. And I would suggest to you that this may be most people's, most people's greatest objection to the Bible. It has nothing to do with how long ago it was written or whether or not God actually did it. Most people's real gut-level core objection to Scripture is it tells the truth about what's really going on inside. Mark Twain actually said something that I think is so profound. He said, quote, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. You see, we know that there are parts of our lives that do not sync up with what God says biblically. And so if we discount the Bible, then we can do whatever we want. <laughs> we may as well just go live with Max's grandparents. But if you discount the Bible, game on. If it feels good, do it. It's really interesting to me that an academic discipline discounting the authenticity and the validity of Scripture took root and took hold historically at about the same time that Romanticism and modernism took hold in literature and, and in science around the world. Go, go back to the late 19th century and the late 1800s. It was during that season and during that time when romanticism was on the rise that, that academics began to study and, and kind of try to poke holes in the validity of Scripture and say, well, Paul didn't really write that letter to Timothy or to the Ephesians, so the whole thing must be completely invalid intellectually and academically. And because a lot of Christians had never done the legwork and the homework to know why we believe what we believe, they just kind of went, uh-huh, okay. Instead of realizing that the Bible stands up under scrutiny intellectually and academically better than any work of antiquity that the world has ever known, and kind of pushing back on the academics and saying, uh-uh, this is the Word of God. If we're talking about a God who is truly God, who is the creator of everything, and we are, then it's not really a reach to say that he could supernaturally communicate what he wanted communicated to imperfect people and protect the translation of it so that we could have an accurate record of his word, his intent, and his will. Now, does it take faith? Absolutely it takes faith. It doesn't take any more faith than it takes for you to believe in love. But it takes faith. 
So it's important for us to understand that our faith is founded on fact and faith. It, it requires certain beliefs, but it promises certain relief from self-reliance, from self-salvation. Because the reality is we can't save ourselves. And as important as Scripture is, as sweet as the Word of God really is, there, there's a temptation that we have to be careful of. We cannot ever forget that the Word of God is not God. The Word of God is not to be worshipped itself. It's to be known, it's to be studied, it's to be incorporated into our lives, but it's never to be worshipped. Because the Word of God is not God itself. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. God is relational. And to really get at this, you've you got to understand something that is beautifully communicated in the first chapter of the book of John. John chapter 1 is <clears throat> essentially an introduction to the life of Christ, written by the Apostle John, different from John the Baptist. But in his introduction, he gives us a phenomenal insight into the Word of God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, first of all. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So he's clearly talking about a person. He's not talking about an inanimate object, not talking about a, a book. He's talking about a person, but he uses a critically strategic word to describe Jesus. He says, the word. Everybody say word. Word, word up. In the beginning was the word. <clears throat> that word, word, in the original Greek language is the word logos. Say logos. logos. Log you're all now bilingual. This is great. You're going to be able to dazzle your friends around the water cooler this week. The word logos was huge to both a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience that John was addressing. Now, for the Jewish audience, they would have seen this, this word, the word, the logos, in the context of their Old Testament understanding, to know that every time God spoke, God acted. If God said it, it was as good as done. That, that's why in the, the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish heart set, if you said something, it was out there. You didn't take it back. You didn't say, oops, sorry, I misspoke. Forget I said that. If you said it, it mattered. It had weight to it. But on the other hand, the Greek audience that John was also simultaneously addressing, they understood the word logos to, to mean a principle, a precept that is a philosophy that has always been here. The Greeks were very philosophical, as you know, right? And so they would see Logos and say, oh, there's some intellectual weight to this Jesus thing. Isn't that fascinating? Let's put on a toga and discuss. And John was able to marry both of those using the word Logos 
And what he's saying for Jew and Gentile alike is that Jesus, Jesus humanizes the Bible. Jesus humanizes the Word of God. And he makes it personable. Now, now the Word of God is not simply an academic study, but it is personal. It is relatable. Anything you want to know about the Bible, anything you want to know about the Word of God, look at Jesus. Look at what he did. Look at what he said. Look at his life, his ministry as it's related in Scripture. Jesus humanizes the Word of God. He is the personification of everything else that the Bible says. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He says, before he returns, every I dotted, every T crossed will be fulfilled. Jesus humanizes the word of God. Look at verses 4 and 5 in John chapter 1. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus energizes the word of God. Jesus, Jesus takes what's the words on the page, and he gives energy to it. He, he sheds light on those words. He is the light of the world. And so there's, there's no darkness in him. He shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't understand him yet, but he energizes the word of God. But look at verse 14. <laughs> the word... The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Grace in, in, in the sweetness of God. Truth the saltiness of God, Jesus full of both, that perfect combination that is so undeniable, so appealing, so good. The Word became flesh, and, and He made His dwelling among us. He, he, he walked amongst us. He lived like us. He lived with us. So that we could see the goodness of God in the fullness of grace and truth. Never compromise the truth, but never back down a moment from grace. And provided a, an example for us to follow in relationship. This is the goodness of God. This is why the word of God is so sweet. Because Jesus makes it all make sense. Jesus brings it all together. And if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, you've never tasted the goodness of God, in just a moment we want to give you the opportunity to do that. You don't have to pass a test. You, you don't have to you know, have perfect attendance at church for six months. It, it's just a willing heart. It's, it's being willing to surrender your life to the only one who can't take advantage of your surrender. 
He will leverage that surrender for his glory. And as he is glorified, it becomes your good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you do me a favor and just bow your heads for a moment? And as you do, I want to ask nobody to move for any reason. This is not the time to try to beat the Methodists to lubies. This is holy ground. Because God's moving in people's lives. And you don't want to be anywhere close to a distraction. But if you want to step into a relationship with Christ, if you want to taste and see that he is good, then we want to invite you to do it right now. To pray that prayer of surrender, of commitment, to follow Jesus, to love him with everything that you've got, and place your trust, your faith in him. If that's you this morning, then just pray just silently right where you are. In your own words, something like this, just, just pray silently. Just say, Jesus, I trust that you are good, and I need you. And so, Jesus, right now, I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me, paying the penalty of my sin. And that you rose again from the grave with the promise of new life that I accept right here, right now, once and for all. Jesus, I give you my life in exchange for yours. And I will follow you with everything that I've got from this moment forward. Jesus, I lift up this prayer in your name. If you would, just for, a, just for another moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And so I want to I wanna ask you to do just a couple of things. Number one, let us help. As a church, we, we want to come alongside and help you grow in this new relationship that you just stepped into. So if you would, take out the program that you got when you came in today. Open it up. And you'll see there a connect card. If you would just... Fill that out with your name and contact information. And then about a fourth of the way down, you'll see a little box that says, I committed my life to Christ this week. If you just check that and kind of fold it back and forth and tear it off there at the fold, it's perforated. Before you leave today, I want to ask you to hand that Connect card to one of our ushers. Just take a brief moment and say, hey, today was my day and make a personal connection so that we can help. So that we can be a family of faith to you, with you. And then the second thing that I want to ask you to do is our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment more. 
For those of you who prayed to receive Christ and committed your life, I want to ask you just to raise your hand. Just raise it up high over your head and hold it there for a moment. And as you hold your hand in the air, you're doing a couple of things. Number one, you're kind of marking this moment in your life and saying, that, yep, that was real. That happened. God did it. I responded in His grace. October the 2nd, 2016. But then the second thing that you're doing is you're kind of marking this moment in the life of this church. Because for us, there's nothing more important than that. And our, our family tradition as a church is to honor that and to celebrate that with you. To celebrate it in baptism like you saw earlier, but just in this moment, as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.